BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As technology has progressed over the past century, scientists and engineers have discovered ways to make technology smaller and smaller and still yield the same, even greater results. Satellite technology is no exception to this progress in miniaturization. Nanosatellites are satellites that have a mass between 1 and 10 kilograms and are populating low-level orbit more and more frequently. As of August 2021, over 1,600 nanosatellites were in orbit around Earth. Joining us today is Dr. Kevin Petty, Vice President of Earth System Science and Technology at Spire, a company that utilizes nanosatellites to predict environmental change. Welcome to Weather Geeks, Dr. Kevin Petty. Thank you. Thank you, Marshall, for having me on. Appreciate it. I have to be honest, it's hard for me to acknowledge him as Dr. Petty, which is what I had in my production (laughs) notes, because I know Kevin and we're colleagues that have known each other for some time. So I'm going to sort of reserve the right to call him Kevin. But just please know he is Dr. Petty. I'll read his some of his bio in a moment. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. You're someone that we've wanted to talk to for some time. And so glad to have you. You know, I'm going to not deviate from our tradition, which is to ask every Weather Geeks guest, how'd you become a Weather Geek? <laughs> yeah, mine, uh, my path was a little bit different than most. Uh, like I tell people, I did not see that tornado when I was six years old. And, you know, that that took me kind of down this path. What uh, what actually happened is uh, I was a math teacher and I also had a minor uh, in social studies. So I was, I was teaching math and geography at the high school level. And, and for many of your listeners that know within geography, there's a component called physical geography. And in that portion of physical geography, we, we talk about earth systems and that, and how they work. And that just, you know, that got me fascinated that, wow, you know, there's this aspect of, of atmospheric science and weather. And I thought, you know, how can I learn more about this? And as a teacher, uh, you know, you're I, I wanted to move up on the on the pay scale a little bit. And I decided to to actually pursue atmospheric science and, and go back to college. And, and I ended up doing it all all at one time and, you know, did the master's degree and Ph.D. And uh, so here I am today. But, yeah, I did not start as, as kind of the young kid who saw a thunderstorm, tornado. It, it came a little bit later in life for me, but uh, totally fascinated by it. Yeah, no, that's that's a typical story that we hear about being the little kid that wanted to know more about something that he was fearful of or she was fearful of. So I I had heard your story before. In true confession, I've I've had Kevin actually as a guest in one of my classes at the University of Georgia. And so I actually did not know that about his background, starting off in in education and sort of then transition, transitioning. Let me give you a little bit about Kevin's background. As I mentioned, he is the vice president of Earth System Science and Technology at Spire. And we're going to find out all about what that means. Uh, But before that, he was most recently at the weather company, uh, an IBM business where he served as head of science and forecasting and head of public private partnerships. Uh, He was involved in aspects of research and development for weather solutions and forecasting. 
and he also was involved in other sort of aspects of IBM and weather company as it related to government, academia, and the private sector. I believe before you joined the weather company, you were with Visala, as I recall, uh, based out of Colorado and has a PhD from Ohio State University. Um, Did I miss anything in your pathway that uh, that you want to share with us? Because I I have some information from our notes, but I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, I, you know, I'd love to, you know, I share as well, you know, after after the PhD, I was a postdoc at uh, the National Center for Atmospheric Research and then I became a project scientist there. I, I left for a period of time and ended up working for the National Transportation Safety Board in Washington, D.C., and I investigated airplane accidents from a weather perspective uh, and, and actually had two two stints at NCAR, went back to NCAR became a scientific program manager for a period of time before joining Vaisla. So yeah, a little bit, little bit more there. Uh, and as I noted earlier, really uh, right after undergrad, I was a, a high school teacher for a couple of years. Yeah, I think you have a very broad background. And I think it's interesting because you've tapped into sort of the federal sector. You've tapped into other sectors as well. Uh, tell us about Spire. Yeah, Spire is just a, a, a wonderful company on the cutting edge. And um, in your intro, you mentioned this aspect of uh, small satellites and what we are seeing in the atmospheric sciences and more broadly across Earth science is the fact that we're able to derive more and more information from satellites. And there was a time period where, you know, the the launching of satellites really kind of set in the public sector or the government did most of that. But now as a, as a company like Spire, um, we're finding these avenues to put up these small satellites to retrieve information that will help us uh, improve weather forecasting and improve our understanding of uh, Earth system overall. So one of the aspects that I our research tells me is that you and or Spire and your colleagues are thinking a lot of these days about weather and earth intelligence. Uh, for the Weather Geeks listener who has never heard those terms before, uh, enlighten us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and in reality, that is my role within Spire. I, I run two different groups. I run a weather group and then I run a group that we call Earth Intelligence. From the weather side, what we're really focused on is utilizing data from our satellites, radio occultation data, which gives us information about the temperature in the atmosphere as well as humidity and pressure. We want to use that information um, to drive our numerical models that forecast the weather in time. And so, as you know, Marshall, these these numerical models are mathematical models that simulate the atmosphere uh, over time. So we're utilizing data from those satellites to do things like that. But uh, at the same time, our technology allows us to derive other information about the earth, such as things like the soil moisture, or where is there sea ice or winds uh, out over the ocean? What, you know, how are those winds blowing? What direction? So we're finding more and more that um, our technology is giving us additional information about uh, weather, about the earth, that can lead into products and solutions that can help decision makers make critical decisions about their operations. One thing that, you know, I'm a 
satellite guy myself. I mean, I spent much of my career at NASA before I joined the faculty at the University of Georgia. And I'm seeing rapid explosion of this sort of nanosat, satellite, small sat, cube sat technology. Uh, from your perspective and from your vantage point as a scientist who I, I see as someone that kind of looks across the, the, the spectrum of our enterprise, what is it about this sort of new generation of small satellites that make it advantageous over sort of the large satellite systems that I, I was used to developing at NASA with the, say, the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission or GPM? Uh, why why are we right. seeing this explosion in small sets? Yeah, I think we're, we're just seeing opportunity there. Um, instead of, let's say, taking 10 years to develop a satellite and get it into space, with these small satellites, we're able to be a bit more agile and, and get, you know, from kind of the idea phase to launch, you know, we can do that within six to nine months. And, um, and that is providing uh, these unique platforms to get instrumentation into space quicker. Uh, allowing us to observe parts of the earth that we haven't observed before. And that's another aspect that is, is really key to what we do, at least within Spire, is we're really interested in aspects that are underserved when it comes to observations. But this aspect of, of being very agile and also being extremely cost effective, you know, we're lowering the cost of entry uh, as it relates to getting instrumentation into space. And that's going to be critical because what this does is it accelerates our ability to do science, our ability to provide solutions. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, we, we, through aspects of um, severe weather, we, our population is growing, we're building in, in different places along coastal regions, and we need more information so that we can protect populations and provide uh, information that allows them to make the best decisions to protect life and property, as well as enhance our overall economic effectiveness of our country and countries around the world. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Kevin Petty, who's the vice president of Earth System Science and Technology at Spire, a company that is using nanosatellites and small satellites for environmental change. Now, let's let's geek out with this is Weather Geeks. And so let's geek out a little bit. Uh, tell us about some of the aviation, marine and space related activities that you're really pointed to in terms of I mean, how how is sort of your activities, you've heard a little bit about the satellite activity that you're doing, weather intelligence and so forth. Connect the dots for us to these industries or these sectors of society that people are familiar with in their daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, anytime, uh, particularly, you know, right now is a, a great time to talk about some of this from a weather perspective. You know, we we hear in the news about supply chain issues and that's about, you know, getting our products from point A to point B. And as part of that, everything that we do uh, on a daily basis almost is impacted by weather as well as our supply chain. So what we're looking to do is with the technology that we're, we have, we can derive information about the atmosphere, 
that information is going to help us produce enhanced forecast. And those enhanced forecasts can allow us to address um, different markets like aviation and maritime with uh, better information about, hey, how should you get your ship from point A to point B? How's that going to be impacted by the weather? How should you plan? How should you respond? All of those things are really critical when we talk about uh, aspects of, of supply chain or, or even when we're talking about aviation and, and the flight of aircraft. You know, How do we make sure that uh, people get the, the smoothest ride possible uh, when it comes to aspects of, of things like turbulence uh, as, as aircraft are impacted? So you can see how all this plays into our daily life. Lives. We are all impacted by weather, even if it's a beautiful day outside. There's somewhere else in the world where you know that that Apple Watch that you might want is is, is traversing its supply chain, and we're trying to help it get from point A to point B in a, a fast, efficient manner. And as you were talking, Kevin, I was thinking about. I guess it was a couple of years ago. I, I, I recall there was a large cargo or container ship that got wedged in the Suez Canal, and I believe Remember it was, that. you know, strong crosswinds, uh, for example, that caused the problem for that ship. And so I know that some some of the uh, in the shipping uh, industry had some advanced weather intelligence or weather information on on what was going on and basically held their ships out of that canal. So that is, that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Yeah, that, that exactly. You know, helping um, to, to ensure that those types of things don't happen. One of the other uh, aspects about our technology is not only are we gathering weather data uh, itself, but our satellites track aircraft and they track ships. And so we combine that information to provide enhanced insights uh, to those particular uh, markets about, you know, how is weather impacting these these trade routes, or you know, how is it how is it impacting other aspects of of how those uh, different industries are operating? So just that diversity and in, in what we're able to provide. Um, really has uh, has gotten us all excited and positions us well for the future. Yeah, and Weather Geeks listeners, one of the things that we're talking about here, you know, back in the day, and it wasn't too long ago when people like me and Kevin were graduate students, I mean, a lot of the information that went in our weather forecast models were essentially the weather balloons. We'd launch them twice a day, um, and we'd get data where those balloons go up and Candidly, uh, Kevin's previous company, Vaisla, was a big player in this space in terms of profiling the atmosphere, taking samples of the atmosphere, because the weather models need that kind of information. They take that, they take surface information and so forth. But we're in an era, I heard Kevin mention radio occultation a few minutes ago, and I want, to, I want you to geek out on that a little bit. Tell, <laughs> tell the listeners what that is and how it, how it actually is providing a new type of data source. Because on, on Weather Geeks, we love to get into the, the geeky weeds, if you will, as opposed <laughs> to having to sort of filter it down for like a, a television news. So when you mentioned radio occultation, I was like, oh, let's go there. Uh, so, for example, what is radio? I mean, I, I think it has something to do with sort of for moisture or reciprocal water or, or some water vapor. Tell us what radio occultation is going to do and providing additional data sets for our models or for assessment. Just as an example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we'll we'll, we'll take it from the standpoint of, of GPS. And most people have heard about GPS. And, you know, when you look at your phone, your phone can tell you 
where you're located. Well, it's using uh, GPS satellites uh, that are in space to help triangulate where you are located in, in, in that phone. And so what we're doing is our satellites are situated in what's called low Earth orbit. And we are listening to these RF signals. And as these RF signals from GPS satellites and, and other constellations out there, there are some like uh, Galileo out of, out of Europe and, and others out of China and, and Russia. Well, our satellites are sitting uh, there in a passive mode and we're listening to these RF signals as they are traversing through the atmosphere. And as those signals pass through the atmosphere, um, those signals uh, get refracted and bent and they're impacted by the atmosphere in different ways. Well, with that information, we can derive aspects of what's the temperature as that signal is passing through the atmosphere. What's the, what's the uh, humidity? What, what's the pressure? And those types of variables um, as you were saying, Marshall, are analogous to information that we would get from a weather balloon in, in kind of more traditional sense. But now we have all of these profiles all over the world, not just where, where weather balloons are being launched. They are in remote regions that have very little information on weather. But now with that type of information, we can plug that information into these numerical models and now get better forecast in regions of the world that we couldn't provide that level of accuracy before. And that's what's so exciting. And these, these data, uh, you know, from, from radio occultation, they're very complementary to these other data sets. And uh, we're finding more and more uh, uses uh, from, from the data as well. One thing that people, people don't know is with this technology, you can also get other uh, information such as uh, total electron content in the ionosphere. Now, with information like that, you can get uh, a better assessment of things like space weather. And space weather is becoming more and more critical to our overall operations, to how communication systems work and you know, how they're impacted. And then the other, the other aspect uh, of that is um, these GPS signals will um, reflect off the earth. And, and we can do something called uh, GNSS reflectometry, where when that signal uh, reflects off the earth, the, the earth has certain properties uh, and, and, and not to get too, too detailed, but you, the dielectric properties. Oh, we we, we uh, love detail. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the properties of the surface of the earth can tell us about, hey, things like soil moisture. Is it dry? Is it wet? And now, again, you have another data set that you can create value-added products, or you can assimilate those data into uh, the models to help us understand that interface between Earth and atmosphere and what that exchange is like. So uh, again, it's just, uh, it's an exciting time for the atmospheric sciences when it comes to new observations, new capabilities, and the rapid technology and the rapid growth that we're seeing um, is just going to propel us forward uh, when it comes to uh, improving our understanding of the earth and improving forecasting overall. One, one thing I've noticed about your outstanding career over the years, Kevin, is that you've been a key leader sort of in the weather enterprise, but particularly in the private sector. 
of the weather enterprise that now at Spire and before that at the weather companies and Vaisala. What do you see as the role of the private sector in the new weather climate enterprise? Because let's keep it real. Uh, in, in past decades, there was contention. I mean, I think people are like, well, no, this is what the government should be doing. NOAA and NASA and so forth. And their private sector is trying to. But I've seen over the years a bit more of a coming together, an understanding that, you know, to get where we need to be as a weather climate enterprise, we need the, the, the skill sets and, and, and capabilities and resources of all involved. So tell us about how you see the private sector in the emerging weather climate enterprise. Yeah, that's uh, that, that is such a great topic. Um, you know, I, I go back to to a time in my career where when I went to the private sector, um, somebody responded to me and said, oh, you're going to the dark side. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, no, no, it's, it's not like that. Uh, what people really have to understand is uh, there is a passion in the private sector, just like there is in the public sector and academia to really have a true positive impact on the planet, on society. And within the private sector, what we have seen over the last couple of decades is we've seen this growth around research and development. You know, there was a time that, hey, uh, mo most of the research in the core science was done in, in an academic setting or, or in some parts of the public sector. But there's a lot of good research going on in the private sector uh, right now around atmospheric science, around modeling, around computation, uh, around observations. And, and what, how I see this is that there are these th three pillars. There's the private sector, there's a public sector and academic sector. And, and in order for us to tackle some of the world's most challenging problems, each of these groups has some really key components to bring to the table. As I mentioned in, in the private sector, uh, this, this aspect of agility and, and moving really fast is something that we're quite proud of. Um, and, and we can do things in an, iterative in an iterative way and try to get some things out the door. But we depend on the academics to do that basic research that eventually is going to find its way into operations. And we want to put that into operations. And then we want to work with our colleagues in the, in the public sector to say, hey, how do we come together? What are those data sets that we can provide to you? We're getting data sets from them. Um, we're also working on how do we communicate information to people? When we think about our colleagues that are in, um, you know, that we see on TV, they're a key part of this ecosystem. They're on the front lines of how we communicate information. Yes, we have apps out there. Yes, we have websites, but we all need to think about and come together and talk about how best to communicate that information to people in the public and to other businesses. So there's this aspect of we have this great ecosystem that's made up of primarily these three groups, but you know we can also bring in NGOs and others. But this is just such a great opportunity for us uh, in the U.S. and globally to, to learn how do we take advantage of what each other has to offer and, and make an impact on society.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Kevin Petty, Vice President of Earth System Science and Technology at Spire. Um, you mentioned, you know, weather intelligence earlier and Earth intelligence. If we start here in March 2022, and you have a magic wand for the next five, 10 years and an unlimited budget, what is it that you envision that we need to really get us over the hump in terms of what you're trying to do with weather intelligence? Is it more observations? Is it finer resolution, faster computers, all of the above? I mean, what's your sort of smoking gun, holy grail um, need in the weather earth intelligence community? Wow. Oof, that is a, that's a big one there, Marshall. Um and and I have to say that there there is a bit of all of the above, but I'm I'm probably going to key on in on two things, and the first of those things is observations in data sparse regions. That's a big thing um, to me right now, and um, and as part of those observations in data sparse regions, we are missing observations in the boundary layer. That's a, that's a key area where we as a community have to improve and, and have to, to get better. And that's, let me just interject there yeah. because I just lectured on the boundary layer. That's for the weather geeks listeners. That's generally that first zero to one, one kilometer of the atmosphere. It's the part of the atmosphere that still feels the influence of the surface. I mean, and it varies throughout the day, but just for those uh, weather geeks listeners that uh, wanted to kind of get a sense of what you meant by the boundary layer, please continue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the other thing that uh, the reason I also highlight data sparse regions, you know, we will kind of get fixated on weather around us, you know, and I'll pick on the United States, but it's important for us to understand what's happening upstream of us, you know, what Pacific Ocean, what's what's happening in parts of Asia, you know, all of that, we need to have an understanding. And, and so, uh, even with uh, some of my colleagues in Africa and in South America, they recognize that, hey, we need more observations, again, particularly in the boundary layer, but even at upper levels of the atmosphere to, to help us understand our weather and also uh, weather downstream. You know, we're talking about a fluid. We're not talking about something that you know, stays in one place. So uh, what happens on, on one, in one part of the, 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 the earth is going to impact us elsewhere. Um, the other thing that I think is really vital is the translation of weather data into information. Uh, and people tend to use a term that's actionable. And, and we, we have to even go beyond that a bit and understand that information for you and me, Marshall, the way we consume that might be different than somebody else. 
And we have to start accounting for that and bringing in our social scientists, working with our physical scientists and, and understand how this translation needs to, to happen is going to be important for us if we're going to optimize the impact that that weather can have on society. And a great example that people will talk about sometimes is hurricanes. So a hurricane is coming. You tell people to evacuate. Well, not everybody has the same means uh, and, and not everybody can evacuate. So what do you tell those people that don't have the means to evacuate? And are you accounting for those people? So this is what I'm talking about when we have to meet people where they are with weather information. And right now we are we're falling short of that. And so those are a couple of things that are that I'm pretty passionate about um, in, in areas that I think we have to improve. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate you mentioning that because, you know, we know that there are sort of vulnerable groups, marginalized populations, communities of color, co poverty uh, that, you know, may get the same information, but act on it differently. I mean, I, you and I can go, hop in our car and evacuate New Orleans and go stay in a hotel in Memphis for a week. I've got the means to do that. Exactly. And I have insurance on my home. So if it gets destroyed, I'm probably going to be good for at least repairs. Uh, there are people that maybe face that same hurricane. They know it's coming, but they don't even have a car, much yeah. less the ability to go rent a, a $100 or $200 a night hotel. So, you know, these issues of vulnerability and equity and access are very important. And I wanted to actually stay there for a second because, you know, as a scientist of color, um, we know that this atmospheric sciences and broader STEM fields are still, you know, lacking diversity in terms of gender and other representation. Um, how have you sort of managed that and sort of do you have any thoughts on that generally? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely an area that, um, you know, we have to continue to work on. And the reason that I believe that this is so important is when we talk about innovation, uh, innovation can flourish in a setting that is made up of diverse people because you bring in diversity of perspective, which actually leads to enhanced innovation. And the question is, um, you know, how to how do we. Um, how do we stimulate that moving forward? And, you know, oftentimes, you know, one of the, the, the areas I think we, we sometimes fall short is um, we, we say we're going to do the, do something, but then we don't really follow up on, well, what were really the outcomes of those things? You know, did we put some metrics on that and see, did we enhance enrollment in the STEM fields? Did, did we bring more people through a specific graduate program? We have to start holding ourselves accountable here uh, with these kind of metrics and saying, hey, if, if what we did did not result in, in the changes that we were anticipating, let's go do something different because that did not work. And, and sometimes we get caught in a rut a bit of, of thinking that we're doing some good things when we're really not because we're not tracking the metrics. Um, and then as you have done, and, and you know, I, I believe that I've, I've, I've done as well, uh, I feel that I have a role of responsibility. You know, I have a role and responsibility to engage. I have a role, uh, in, and that means engaging at an individual level, but it also means engaging at an institutional level. 
you know, what can I do in a one-on-one setting to, to help um, younger people uh, that might come from underserved uh, population? And how can I bring them into the STEM field? Uh, in addition, at, a, at an institutional level, what can I be doing with Inspire or within the broader community? You know, what can I be doing with Inspire and the broader community to, to help facilitate actions that are going to lead to uh, reaching the types of goals that we need to reach when it comes to things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. And again, I cannot reinforce enough the fact that innovation, it can be enhanced through the diversity of thought, which comes from diversity of those people contributing to that innovative activity. Yeah, I, I think about that when I watched that movie Hidden Figures. Imagine if Katherine Johnson had not been included in in the right. in in the Apollo discussions. I mean, we may have not have gotten to the moon. And so, yeah, those those ideas. I mean, I want all the ideas on the table, not just the exactly. select few. Last question here, and this has been a great conversation with Dr. Kevin Petty of Spire. Um, as we see this emerging industry represented by your company, uh, what is a company like yours looking for in the next generation of scholars and employees at Spire? Yeah, yeah. Um, another, you know, fabulous question, something that I think about quite often. Um, I, you know, when I think about kind of that next employee, I think about that individual who can address uh, some of the things that I touched on a bit earlier. I love to have those people that have that technical understanding uh, within our community, particularly atmospheric science. We some going going way back. You know, we we tend to get trained up in things like Fortran because that's what our, most of our models are, are focused on. But I need people who have a, a broad set of programming skills. Uh, for one thing, beyond just Fortran. I also uh, need those people who know how to take um, their understanding of science and translate that in a manner that other people can understand. And that is fundamental when it comes to us reaching our customers and being able to interact with our customers. And then I want those people that are truly pushing to be on the cutting edge. One thing that, that we haven't talked about too much is things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. Those are going to be some things that are not going away. We're seeing that they're impacting our business. We know that they're going to impact uh, the, the broader uh broader industries and looking for people that have that understanding, have that capability that can help us move forward as a company. Um, but, but most importantly, uh, people that have the passion, are you passionate about what you do? And, uh, and that will help you excel overall. Where, where can people find out more about Spire? Is there a website or any social media sites or so forth that you want to pass along? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our, our website is, is pretty easy overall, just uh, spire.com, uh, S-P-I-R-E.com and uh, go there, take a look. You can see what we're doing. You can see some of the opportunities that uh, are there as well. And, uh, and, and finally, you know, feel free to, uh, to reach out to me if you, if you have a question. Uh, it may take me a few days to get back to you, but uh, oftentimes, particularly those people that are in the early career or students will reach out and ask a question here or there, and, and I will do my best to respond. 
Yeah, and I, I, I know he will, too. I, again, I've known Kevin for some time. He's been a, a real key contributor to the enterprise and someone that uh, is there, there, there to, to respond and, and help and, and move, move the needle forward on many fronts. So, Kevin, thank you for all that you're doing. Before we get out of here, uh, we don't have a geek of the week from the producers, but I'm going to give a geek of the week. I'm going to take host privilege and give geek of the week this week to the UGA small sat lab. Uh, this is a group of young students that actually has developed a couple of CubeSats, one of which is now on the international space station with funding from the air force and NASA. So shout out to the university of Georgia, small sat research lab, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the weather geeks podcast. Thanks for having me, Marshall. I really enjoyed it. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Thank you. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.